Welcome to the Political Risk Brief. My name is Jonathan Barron of Barron Public Affairs. Thank you for joining us at the intersection of politics, policy, demographics, and economics. Today's topic, the private sector's public sector future. Joining me, Johnny Fluger. Great to be here, Jonathan, as always. And Jeremy Furchgott. Great to be here. Thanks. Today, we are going to discuss a seemingly incredibly boring topic, but it has— Oh, boy. <laughs> but it has very, very important implications. It's a topic everyone loves to ignore, but it can't be ignored. And I'm going to start with the following, which is if you read the Wall Street Journal every day, the print edition, as I do— You will look through the various sections, and the A section has U.S. News, Personal Journal, Arts and Review, Sports Opinion, World News. You might flip to the B section, which is Business and Finance, covers business news, of course, but also has the stock numbers, the commodities, statistics, markets and finance, and heard on the street. One section you will not find is the procurement section. Now, that might be because nobody would read it, but I would argue that the Wall Street Journal should have a procurement section because increasingly it is defining private sector innovation, and it is the venue through which private sector companies seek to gain advantage and, in addition, disadvantage their competitors. So we're going to explore this topic today and why nearly every business leader, nearly everyone who deploys capital, nearly every policymaker needs to understand procurement as a key facet of not just the American economy, but American innovation and of American power and the fate of markets and the fate of various sectors of the American economy. Now, when I say procurement, of course, I'm referring to government procurement, public sector procurement, and that is the money the U.S. government sends to various private parties to procure goods and services. So we're referring, again, not to a typical private sector relationship with a vendor, but the U.S. government's payments, interactions, contracts with various companies on every item imaginable, not just traditional defense, which goes back, of course, a long way, but everything else that we could possibly think of. As we explore today's topic, there are a few key points that I want to highlight for the listener, and we're going to explore these and quite a bit else, but I want to make sure to get across the following three central experiences that we've had at the firm. First, It is rarely the case that the public sector adopts a private sector innovation and the private sector will lead in a new area. More often than not, it is actually the public sector, the government, that is commissioning a new technology, some kind of new approach, and that, in fact, drives the private sector. And the government itself is the credentialing institution that gives a new approach or a new technology credibility in the private market. That's number one. Number two, government procurement is not only growing in dollar terms, but it is impacting an increasing number of sectors. So it's not just that the amount of government procurement, the amount of dollars spent is rising, but more and more sectors are receiving those dollars. And third, the common view of government procurement as either on one hand merit or on the other extreme corruption doesn't capture the reality of procurement. In fact, procurement occupies this strange space, this strange mix, which we would describe as gamesmanship. It is both merit and politics and influence and a whole bunch of other stuff in this ever-shifting dynamic. I want to turn to you, Johnny, to dive into the conversation with the following. How should business leaders, investors, elected officials understand the reality of government procurement as a force in the modern economy? 
government contracts at the size and scale at which the U.S. government operates can cast die that shapes a market for decades. I think we've seen this over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic with the support that the U.S. government, through a variety of different mechanisms, has provided different players in the healthcare market, not just vaccine manufacturers, which would probably be the most significant on people's minds, but other sectors such as healthcare diagnostics. As an example, some of the rapid testing companies that have received multi-billion dollar contracts to provide COVID antigen tests through the U.S. Postal Service to U.S. citizens were practically unknown prior to the pandemic. They did not have any standing comparing to some of the large medical diagnostics companies that also have been producing those tests. And as a result of the multi-billion dollar contracts that they've received during this boom time period for medical diagnostics, they will flourish and exist and have market share that they never would have had otherwise. That's the power of government procurement, Jonathan. The capital that flows into companies, as well as the case studies they can bring to bear in the private sector. They can say, we are doing this for the United States government, the most important customer in the world, and one of the most reliable customers in the world. So you in other country or you in private company should give us your business. It's a mechanism for standing up players in a market in a way that rarely can come to pass, except in certain exceptional circumstances, like we saw with certain tech companies in the late 90s, early 2000s that grew from very small startups to giants. And that maybe is because of network effects and certain dynamics that are particular to technology. But in the case of, for example, COVID-related procurement, it's that federal revenue and that scaling across customers that reconfigures a market. That's the power of procurement. And Johnny, we saw that, the two of us, play out in the real world. Pre-pandemic, as you'll recall, we sat in a lab in California where it was a very innovative company that was pioneering the testing technology that ultimately became what was used, I think, in many cases or similar approaches on COVID. But the government procurement process allowed big, sophisticated companies the opportunity to catch up and credential themselves in a way that probably would not have happened but for COVID. Yes, I think it's an accelerant to small companies, as you put it, Jonathan, who are sophisticated, who understand how the game is played and can play it effectively and efficiently and develop mind share among decision makers in the government. And it's also an accelerant for large companies that are resourced and experienced and have scale and can meet the requirements that government decision makers are setting out. So I think a common misconception that is perpetuated by individuals who describe themselves as procurement reformers is that procurement only advantages the big guys. That's not true. It does advantage the big guys, and it also advantages the little guys who can maneuver and iterate and gain access and establish themselves as the new, new thing that the government wants to fund. Before we move to some of the figures on federal spending on contracts, I want you, Johnny, to address the following. A lot of people, I'm sure, listening to this 
think, well, look, government procurement had a huge impact in the 1950s and 1960s in defense and the related sectors of aerospace, et cetera. What makes the current era any different than that 1950s, 1960s era? It's a great question. I think there are a couple ways of tackling the question. The first is I think the scenarios we confront have recurred in American history. There have been periods of booms in procurement, and along with the booms, a lot of controversy and scrutiny that occurred during the Civil War in the 19th century, which is the beginning of what we would today call False Claims Act litigation, which is a very profitable field. And similarly, there, during World War One and during World War Two and the beginning of the Cold War, there were moments of an increasing focus on procurement. I recall the first play that I saw at Arena Stage here in Washington, D.C. as an adolescent was Arthur Miller's All My Sons, which is, my sense, not read so much anymore relative to his other plays. And it's about war profiteering during World War II. And I think that questions of procurement, Jonathan, wax and wane, and we're in a period where they have wax. Now, I think there are two factors that make what's occurring today different than what occurred during the early part of the Cold War. The first would be that, in many instances, those were what we would today call moonshot technologies that did not have near-term commercial applications. There still is no supersonic passenger service 20-something years after the Concorde ended, just as an example. So there were a lot of innovations that went into the space program, for example, that decades later have resonated in the consumer economy. But in the near term, in the 1950s and 60s, I don't think that they resonated and had impact on commercial markets to the extent that what, for example, the Department of Defense does in the area of computing today makes or breaks enterprise information technology companies that didn't exist for the industrial conglomerates of the 1950s and the 1960s. And the second thing I would mention is that I think there has been a consolidation geographically of the wealth effects from procurement that goes to our previous political risk brief called Boomtown on the growing wealth of Washington, D.C. If you look at the five largest defense contractors today, the so-called primes, the two that were, as of a few months ago, not headquartered in the Washington, D.C. area, announced they would be moving their headquarters to the Washington, D.C. area. So one thing we see is an increasing, I would say, concentration of the financial benefits of procurement among constituencies in and around Washington, D.C., and that has all sorts of implications in our populist environment. Jeremy, I'd like to turn for a moment, as I referenced earlier, to the actual numbers regarding federal spending on contracts. Sure. Well, the numbers have gone way up from fiscal year 2015 to 2020. Federal spending on contracts grew 52%, from $438 billion to $665 billion. So the numbers are way up. And what those numbers also fail to even reflect is not just the growing total amount, but the increasing diversity of procurements. So Johnny was mentioning the prime defense contractors. There are enormous procurements taking place in sectors of the economy far removed from defense as well. You look at healthcare, for example, there are enormous procurements in healthcare that have the potential to reshape the healthcare sector 
many people aren't used to thinking of procurement in non-defense terms. They're used to thinking of who's going to build the next fighter jet, not who's going to build the next generation of healthcare IT that's going to run the nation's healthcare sector. That's definitely one great example, Jeremy. If you look at state, local, and educational procurement nationwide, so-called SLED procurement, that's the acronym that's used, the single largest category within SLED is Medicaid IT systems across all of the states. I can assure you there is no one in the Washington, D.C. area, including at the regulator of Medicaid IT systems, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, who's waking up every day saying, I'm excited to figure out all the ins and outs of Medicaid IT. But we're talking about a market that's in annually likely the tens of billions of dollars, and that has all sorts of domino effects across other, for example, healthcare IT systems. If you're talking about hospital systems or big data analytics that are being run for the federal government, there are all sorts of implications that flow downhill from the choices state Medicaid officials are making, largely funded by the federal government. And you know, one thing that you see is that once a certain sector becomes dominated by a federal procurement, it's very difficult to undo that. If you look at the U.S. Postal Service, for example, one of the most iconic vehicles in the United States over the past 30 years has been the Grumman LLV, which is really, I think, an international icon. You look at an image of that, and that is American. That's uniquely American. It's very difficult to imagine a future in which the Postal Service will move away from a procurement-based approach, which is centralized and large-scale. Whereas if you look at other countries around the world, I mean, I recall in China, I think they use a lot of minivans, regular off-the-shelf minivans for postal use. It's very difficult to go from a custom postal service-style procurement to something that may have existed prior. And the procurement to replace the Grumman LLV has been extremely contentious. That would require an entire podcast series in and of itself. That would be fun, though. Uh, For some in the audience. (laughs) Jeremy, you have a very unique definition of fun. I'd like to inspect your podcast app on your phone, Jeremy. But there are very important interplays in the case that you're describing, Jeremy, between the Grumman vehicle and the maintenance depots in certain politically important states that employ important political constituencies. So you see that these procurements create their own gravity. They have their own interest groups around them. And as you said, they're very, very hard to undo. You know, there's an old joke in Washington. It used to be someone will ask, you know, why do you need the space shuttle? And it would be to get to the space station. Well, why do you need the space station? Well, the space shuttle has to have somewhere to go, right? And so these two things would just sort of interact with each other and create a perpetual motion machine. That is not a statement against space exploration for all of you pro-space people out there, do not take that personally. But again, there is this sense of these things can interact to create their own very long-term momentum. And the Grumman LLV points to something I said before. Long Island was a major center of the American aerospace industry, just as Southern California was a major center of the American aerospace industry at the height of the Cold War. And over time, that dispersion of presence has waned somewhat. And as contractors have consolidated more around Washington, D.C., procurement has become more specialized, more technocratic, I think less on the minds of individuals outside of the Washington, D.C. area, even accounting for major military and procurement presences in key markets like 
manned spaceflight and NASA's operations in Houston, you see in newspapers in particular locales, like the newspaper in New London, Connecticut, has very strong coverage related to submarine procurement for the U.S. Navy. But for the most part, as procurement has become more of the focus of more people in Washington, D.C., I think it's receded to some extent from the minds of business leaders who are outside of this bubble we call home. So, Johnny, it'd be useful to point to an example of an event that served as an accelerant for government procurement, something that was an inflection point that really drove procurement in the way we see today, which is greater volumes of procurement, but also, as we talk about, having greater impact across sectors. I've got three examples for you, Jonathan. The first would be the creation of Medicaid in 1965. And Medicare, I think, American healthcare and the winners and losers commercially have been reshaped by those programs and the procurements associated with them. The second, I would say, would be the strategic defense initiative, so-called Star Wars from the 1980s. I think that was a major factor in the rise of all sorts of procurements related to information-driven warfare in the late 1980s, 1990s, early 2000s, when Donald Rumsfeld was Secretary of Defense. A lot of comedians might have laughed at Star Wars, but there are plenty of people living in mansions in Great Falls who rode the after effects of SDI to the bank, you could say. One, I think, example of that that I encountered recently, there's a really rich, interesting book that came out five years ago on the history of Iridium, the satellite constellation. It's called Eccentric Orbits. And there's extensive discussion in this book about many of the technological innovations that Motorola brought to bear as it was developing Iridium. Many of those innovations grew out of the engineering minutiae of SDI, and many of the individuals involved in Iridium had previously worked as Air Force officers in all sorts of special access program space satellite-related roles at the National Reconnaissance Office, et cetera. So the innovations that SDI incubated were brought to bear in Iridium. And then when Iridium didn't have customers and went bankrupt, the U.S. government, which needed satellite communications for the military, helped recapitalize Iridium. And Iridium exists and is around to this day. So you see the government on the front end and you see the government on the back end. That would be example number two, Jonathan. The third example I would cite, which I think is less well-known than the 9-11 era ramp up in defense and intelligence contractor spending, would be the creation of the CIA's venture capital firm Inqtel in 1999. That was the beginning of the creation of an ecosystem of so-called innovation cells within the government that exist to basically spur procurement of commercial technologies. What that means is the government has become, as a result of InQtel and the lessons learned from InQtel that have been applied across the government, a much more aggressive near-term actor in venture-funded technologies. It's no longer the case 
that the government is merely funding all of this basic R&D at national labs. The government, in its own name, is investing essentially in near-term commercial technologies, and that has created all sorts of ramifications for the product cycle commercially and the effects that government decisions have on that product cycle. So, Jeremy, I'd like you to speak to the complexity of government procurement as a barrier to entry and an advantage for big and or highly sophisticated firms. I know that you and the firm, we've lived this because we ourselves are a DOD government contractor. And so just give our listener a sense of the world that is government procurement and its own unique character. Well, its character is very unique, and it's like thinking about an island that has its own ecosystem. If you look at the careers of people in the private sector, it's very rare that you see people who have gone back and forth between the federal government procurement world and just more pure private sector sales or other commercial activity. People tend to stay within procurement, and that's because procurement is such a unique system. The language is a language that is often incomprehensible to people on the outside. There are terms that sound anodyne, but that actually have all sorts of specificity that can seem sort of like hidden codes to people who are not knowledgeable. I mean, I remember when we first started dipping our toes in this field, I think I spent several weeks trying to figure out how to calculate an overhead rate that was going to be accurate and it would reflect our firm and they would also be consistent with the appropriate guidelines. You know, if you do one thing in a non-standard way, then it can trip you up in a very significant way. So it's very difficult for an outsider to come into this world. And as a result, there's this kind of isolation between the procurement world and the rest of the private sector, which is remarkable given how consequential procurements can be for the trajectory of the private sector. One thing that's interesting is the self-referential quality of the individuals and companies involved in procurement. I do not mean that disparagingly. What I mean is that you have many scenarios where the government officials involved in overseeing procurements are on a circuit, basically speaking, week in, week out at trade press and contractor-supported conferences giving their perspective on the next systems they're going to procure. And there are individuals who basically spend all of their time just going from conference to conference and tracking the intimations and articulations of federal procurement officials. It's almost like the old discipline of Kremlinology applied to, for example, chief information officers for relatively obscure federal agencies And you have almost, we would say, the equivalent of a Davos man, a procurement man who lives to go to these conferences. And what is said at these conferences and meetings and summits can have huge effects on large sectors of the U.S. economy, but you won't find discussion of what's said in the Wall Street Journal. You'll find discussion in Federal News Network, but you won't find it in the Wall Street Journal. And Johnny, when our firm has been involved in advising companies on major procurement battles, when a statement is issued by a key decision maker, that statement is scrutinized for every phrase, each term of art, how is something characterized, and even the use of a specific series of words can carry great importance in signaling 
where a particular multi-billion dollar procurement is headed. And so to your point on criminology, seemingly very, very minor deviations in language and phraseology carry significant consequences and are seen that way. Absolutely. Jeremy, I want to turn to you to explore the interplay between procurement and politics and how one affects the other. So the interplay is interesting because, first of all, there's a lot of internal politics within the procurement world. So I would actually rephrase the question. You really have two layers of politics. There's procurement politics and then there's general politics outside of procurement. And what we've seen is that if you look at federal policymakers, whether they're in the executive branch or in Congress, there are very few political leaders who are willing to take a very active role in procurement, either because they believe that it's inappropriate to weigh in on matters that have these kinds of direct financial implications or because just the language and legalese of the system scares them away. What we found is that when we're working on projects involving procurements, there's just a very small handful of members of Congress, for example, who might be interested in the issue. So you end up with a very strange interaction between politics and procurement or between general politics and procurement politics because there are just so few intermediaries. And I think if one were to imagine a future of what procurement politics might look like, I think there are a lot of questions about the relationship between populism and procurement. There's been a concentration, as Johnny described, there's been a concentration of procurement wealth focused in the D.C. area, and I think that has big consequences for how the populist wings, both of the Republican and Democratic parties, may think about procurement. So there are a lot of unanswered questions about how the relationship between politics and procurement may go in the coming years. Johnny, as a longtime resident of the Washington, D.C. area, as we all are to one degree or another, in terms of the hosts of this podcast, it's great to give the listener a sense of how the procurement subculture exists in Washington. So give a sense, you're riding the metro, what might you run into that you're probably not going to run into in any other city in the United States? Aside from conversations you're overhearing because people are indiscreet. <laughs> That's for sure true. You run into a ridiculous, and I'll underline the word ridiculous, amount of advertising related to government procurement. And some of that paid advertising is very general, promoting a particular company. But when there is a battle being waged around a particular procurement, you find, for example, at Metro Center, which is the core station of the entire metro system here in the D.C. area, you see basically every surface in the station plastered with advertising suggesting why one of four or five or six companies should receive this multi-billion dollar procurement. And I don't know offhand, I looked at this some years ago, but I don't recall what the average duration of the ads are. But it's funny because you'll have a week of one company and then like clockwork the next week, a second company and like clockwork in the third week, a third company and so on and so forth. And you also find that companies that have suffered some sort of reputational damage will, separate from any particular procurement need, advertise themselves as addressing some sort of government requirement. There have been a number of instances of this recently in Metro Center, and you also find it not just in the Metro, but on bus stops. And there are these odd juxtapositions where you'll have 
an advertisement for a show on the CW, and then there will be an FBI most wanted or missing person advertisement. And then the third advertisement will be for a company saying, we're really going to help solve this problem for the thrift savings plan or the Defense Logistics Agency or the Bureau of Land Management or pick your federal agency. And the taglines, the mottos are all similar. Things like solutions delivered. And the funny part is those companies have calculated that someone riding that bus works for the government and has an impact on a multi-billion dollar cloud computing procurement. As an example, or a multi-billion dollar services procurement, or a multi-billion dollar jet engine procurement for the military. I think in general, at our firm, the three of us are skeptics of paid advertising. Jonathan, you have a lot of professional experience in paid advertising. Broadcast, mass, audience blasting isn't effective, in our view, in the way it was in 1975, when the thing to own was a newspaper that had a really strong franchise, as Warren Buffett was famous for articulating. But perhaps the last remnant of a really effective, strong paid advertising is government contractors trying to reach procurement decision makers on or around public transportation in the D.C. area. You know, what it suggests to me is that even if you might have just a small handful of decision makers, you have a whole ecosystem of people who are in a certain sociological group who might see the ad at the bus stop or in the metro station, and they could be friends, family, neighbors, but also within the organization, they could be staff members who, I guess the theory is, if enough people within an agency say that they want a particular product, then that could affect the procurement decision. So it could be about the odds that the actual decision maker could see it, but it could also just be this theory of the procurement world as a group that forms its own decisions as a group. And you see this as well with radio advertising in the Washington, D.C. market. There is so much advertising by government contractors, and I dare say you wouldn't hear the same degree of ads in other parts of the country. And there are specialized programs that appear in the Washington, D.C. media market that are clearly designed to attract vendor advertising. These shows exist really on that very particular business model. And if anyone wants a portal into the world that is D.C.-based government procurement, just if you ever can get to the D.C. market or have another way of accessing the local programming, just watch the advertising in the local market on the Sunday news shows. You will see advertising that doesn't appear almost anywhere else, and it has a language a messaging that is almost incomprehensible to anyone outside of the system. You're never really sure exactly what is being sold because it's very esoteric. And I'd like to give a plug to Federal News Network, which we have no personal relationship with. This is not a paid product placement. Yes. but (laughs) No personal relationship, no business relationship. No, no business relationship. Just an eyeball relationship from time to time. I think Federal News Network is one of the most underappreciated media properties in this entire country. They cover stories that no one else covers, and some of their correspondents are, I think, exceptional. Their correspondent, who for many years has covered IT services, a man named Jason Miller, breaks news that no one else breaks. And for those who would like a flavor of government procurement well covered, I urge you to navigate to Federal News Network and tune into some of their audio programs. If the Wall Street Journal acquires Federal News Network, 
we'll know that someone listened to this podcast. And we'll seek a commission. Now, this whole topic of messaging and advertising around government procurement brings us to a phenomenon that we at the firm like to call procurement fashion. Johnny, why don't you describe what do we mean by the term procurement fashion? Procurement fashion is this mimetic dynamic where an entire echo chamber develops calling on the federal government to spend more and more money to procure a particular good or service or mix of good and services to meet a mission objective. And we see this in a lot of different areas. One in information technology services would be information sharing. After 9-11 and the controversy over the so-called wall between the CIA and the FBI and the sense that disparate parts of the U.S. government had knowledge about the 9-11 hijackers, but it wasn't shared among agencies, tens of billions of dollars of procurement was promulgated to address this problem. And that's a very conservative figure that I just gave. You see this play out in multiple categories. When the Bush administration first tried to address this problem, one of the interesting techniques they applied was hiring former Disney Imagineers who could kind of help, you could say, present some sort of magical solution to what was a bureaucratic problem where people want to silo information and don't want to share with each other. And that has played out over the last 15, 20 years in areas like cloud computing, where there have been a number of extremely contentious cloud procurements. And the thing that has propelled the government decision makers to promulgate these cloud procurements is the idea that by putting all of the government data in a cloud or federation of clouds, we will somehow magically, I would say, solve the information sharing problem. So that's one example. Another example in the defense realm would be the focus on uh, competition with China. That has propelled all sorts of procurements. And I think we saw that close up when we advised the company that had an interest in GPS technology and we forecast that there was likely going to be more of a U.S. government focus on anti-satellite warfare by Beijing and by the Russian Federation. And I remember I in particular, because I'm usually the tinfoil hat guy, articulated this forecast and the interlocutors were extremely skeptical, to put it mildly. They thought I'd lost my mind. And then what happened is, subsequently, the U.S. government The Department of Defense began to talk a lot about the risk to GPS in this country from anti-satellite warfare and all of the tests that the Chinese government had conducted in Western China. And lo and behold, before you know it, hundreds of billions of dollars is being spent to procure lots of different technologies that can help address this issue, whether hypersonic missiles or low-Earth orbit satellite constellations. And once the system, once elites in D.C. become sort of consolidated in their opinion, there's no stop in how much money they're going to spend to address the problem. So these procurement fashion cycles create a superstructure within which certain kinds of spending happen. And once that superstructure takes hold, once that procurement fashion cycle initiates, it tends to have a long life cycle and drive lots of spending. And so to the point about China, 
And Jeremy, I'd like to turn to you as our resident China expert, the person who leads our China practice. Talk for a minute about how the emerging procurement fashion on China specifically is driving procurement. Well, sometimes it drives the procurement in that something would not have been procured if not for this particular procurement fashion. But in other cases, it doesn't actually drive it. It just kind of recharacterizes it. It's more of a question of branding and labeling. And this is something we've seen over the years where there's a certain product that's being associated with a certain set of buzzwords, a certain fashion. So it could help it get over the finish line, but it could be that it would have gotten over the finish line anyway and it needed to be justified. So there's always this interesting question around competition with China. How much of what is being procured is truly being done to address competition with China or how much would have just happened anyway? So one example of this is the entire concept of the Thucydides trap, which posits that inevitably the U.S. and China as the two great powers in the world are headed towards a military conflict. And that notion has gained great traction over the past several years and now almost exists without people even consciously realizing it. But once you accept the premise that the U.S. and China are headed towards a major military conflict as opposed to a more standard, conventional nation-state-to-nation-state competition, you're going to spend money in very particular ways. Yes. So that's why when people bring up alternative views of the future— When people point out that, for example, historically, China has been very reluctant to engage in kinetic warfare, that alternative viewpoint is dismissed or conveniently ignored or forgotten because saying that China is perhaps unlikely to go to war is not going to drive a lot of defense spending for some of the major contractors. So what happens is a procurement fashion begets another procurement fashion concept. So you start with Lucidity's trap, and then if you accept that, that there's going to be this military conflict, well, what's the most likely venue? Oh, it's Taiwan. So now suddenly we've got to defend Taiwan. So by taking those two steps, you've now directed a huge amount of spending in a very particular way. And as you said, Johnny, once that cycle gets going, it is, I won't say irreversible, but again, it carries its own momentum. It creates its own momentum. And so we see these cycles play out. Sometimes they'll play out over 5, 10, 15 years. And usually there's a character, Jonathan, like the business cycle, I would say, where things start off with more sobriety. And then the individuals who are articulators of the procurement fashion say, we need to loosen the procurement standards in order to accelerate the deployment of these very important technologies. And that occurs. And there's a lot of wealth that's distributed, but then improprieties begin to seep in and the improprieties get exposed. There's a scandal and then things get tightened up and the whole cycle starts anew with people saying our procurement processes are too bureaucratic. We need to loosen things up to allow for more innovation. One example of this would be, and I don't have the exact figure in front of me, but it's been many years since I think a consensus was reached on one level, that the Transportation Security Administration and their presence in airports does not meaningfully improve airline safety consistent with the amount spent. So very few people believe that those checkpoints consistently would stop people from smuggling weapons aboard planes at a level that would justify the spend. Yet, those checkpoints 
by and large look the same way they did five, six, seven, eight, ten years ago. Yes, they have different machines, and they got the machine that spins around you, like an MRI or whatever that thing is, and they, you know, as opposed to the magnetometers. But at the end of the day, it's very much the same structure that was near the beginning. And so again, regardless of the analysis on the merits, the spending continues. And it will continue for quite some time until the cycle you described, Johnny, takes hold. And one thing that hasn't occurred in a long time is a major, there are plenty of procurement controversies and bid protests, but there has not been, I would say, a major procurement corruption scandal in a long time. You might have to go back to Operation Ill Wind in the late 1980s or more early 1990s to really find an example where a whole category of actors was involved in impropriety in a time period when there were a series of procurement fashions that maybe condoned what we would, in retrospect, call misconduct. And to people interested in that, I highly recommend the book on Operation Illwind. It is the book, which was written by Andy Pastor, It's called When the Pentagon Was for Sale. He recently retired as the Wall Street Journal's aviation correspondent. At the end of his time at the Journal, he covered all of the controversies related to the Boeing 737 MAX. But in the mid-'90s, he wrote this book, When the Pentagon Was for Sale, and it's very informative for those who are interested in a not easy but enriching read. And by the way, I have a habit of inserting into every podcast episode some Missouri reference. And I just have to note that Harry Truman's rise was based on his leading a Senate investigation of wartime profiteering and corruption during World War II. And so we have seen, rarely, but these big procurement scandals. And I think we're probably due for another one. I just think, as you said, Johnny, it's been quite some time, and the amounts of money involved have gotten so big that I would not be surprised if some enterprising member of Congress decided to revisit or replicate the Harry Truman example. The other thing that your mention of Harry Truman makes me think of, Jonathan, is that when the Truman administration had a commission examine the organization of the U.S. government, and I believe that commission was led by former President Herbert Hoover, many of the tier one management consulting firms that exist today got their big kind of shot in the arm and national recognition and the prestige that they benefit from today from that case study of having advised Herbert Hoover during the Truman administration on reorganizing the federal government for this new era after World War II. And that's a case study in the power of government. A lot of those management consulting firms were successful in the pre-war period for the reason that in an era of more aggressive antitrust enforcement, they were the conduits between different companies who were otherwise very reluctant, sheepish, afraid to speak with each other. So by providing best practices in an industry, they kind of avoided the risk of antitrust enforcement. But the inflection point for them such that they exist at a massive scale today, was a government procurement. Johnny, a moment ago, you made a book recommendation. So I want to complement that with a movie recommendation, The Pentagon Wars, a 1998 film starring Kelsey Grammer, which really is a hilarious parody of a government procurement in the Department of Defense. And although it's probably not a movie that will capture the attention 
of your adolescent children, if you have them, or any children for that matter. It is a great parody of government procurement. I recommend it to all our listeners. Let me move to the final segment of today's podcast, which is three important factors we encounter in studying procurement and advising clients on procurement. And they are information asymmetries, social networks, and the rise of OTAs. If you don't know that acronym, you should, and we'll explain it in a second. So, Johnny, why don't you whip through those as part of our closing segment? Information asymmetries is the fact that government decision makers, especially after 1994, 1995, are not in possession of as much know-how related to the things they're procuring as the commercial actors, the contractors, looking to pitch them. And what that leads to is negotiations, we believe, that are, in general, especially when a fad, a fashion is going, negotiations that are very advantageous to a contractor. And there are very few instances where a government official has been regarded by many as a kind of tough negotiator looking after the interests of the taxpayer. The one prominent example I can think of is the former head of defense pricing in the Pentagon, Shay Assad, who's had a very distinguished career in government and in the private sector. But by and large, the private sector has a structural advantage in the negotiations over multi-billion dollar procurements. Johnny, talk a bit about our second factor, social networks. This relates to the point we've been discussing about the Washington, D.C. area. I think there's only so much you can learn about a procurement from a request for information, RFI, or request for proposal, RFP. So much of the baking of the cake, the requirement setting by the government that has vast implications is determined before there ever even is an RFI. And that process is dependent on the relationships that particular companies, particular consultants, sometimes with undisclosed interests, have with government officials and government agencies. And in order to understand how a procurement develops, you can't just look at the written documents. You have to understand who are the neighbors of the procurement decision makers, who are the longtime associates, who are the sources of inspiration. There's a whole backstory leading up to the formal official promulgation of a procurement that you need to know in order to compete effectively when the stakes are high. And our third, which is the rise of OTAs. And I think OTAs and the story of OTAs is a very important measure of procurement cycles and the phenomenon we're describing today about the rise of procurement and how OTAs have been transformed from one intention to something entirely different. OTA stands for Other Transaction Authority. This is a ability for a government agency to prototype a new technology and not have to go through a more robust, full and open competition process. This is an authority that previously largely was restricted to NASA. And then toward the end of his life, Former Senator John McCain succeeded in making OTAs a bigger reality within the Department of Defense. He was skeptical of the activities of many of the prime defense contractors, and he wanted to see more new entrants providing technology to the warfighter across the Department of Defense. What's happened is that OTAs have really boomed from the point where they were minuscule as a percentage of Department of Defense spending on acquisition to something serious that has 
in many instances, market-typic implications. So a government agency can enter into a conversation with a company that that company's competitors have no knowledge of, prototype very quickly an engagement, and then say, this engagement has been massively successful. We're going to scale this throughout the Department of Defense. And there have been major instances of scrutiny of OTAs. The enthusiasm for OTAs represents what we were referring to previously, Jonathan, which is once a procurement fashion gets going, there's a articulation of a desire to make things easier for the government and bring better, newer capabilities to bear. But then it begins to loosen to the degree that, for example, many of the companies receiving OTAs now are large incumbents who are not new entrants, who are not really prototyping services in many cases, you could say uncharitably, for government agencies. And what this means practically is that private sector entities, potential contractors, have to be aware of what's going on in terms of OTAs because they can have a major effect on your business. But at the same time, you have to take a well-considered position in terms of your own participation because they bring with them, we think, much more risk than is commonly acknowledged. And whether a company is on offense or defense, the effect is to make Washington, D.C. ever more important. And that explains why Washington, D.C. has this growing gravity that's attracting more companies, more talent, more dollars to the area. A great discussion. I want to thank you, Johnny, and you, Jeremy. I'll be back anytime to talk about procurement. It's not even an option, and you wear your tinfoil hat, so that's always a benefit. Jeremy, thank you. This was fun. Thank you. And I'll just close by saying that it seems to us that these trends are likely to continue with some ups and downs, and that's why we say that in many ways the American private sector future is the public sector. So thank you for joining us again for another edition of The Political Risk Brief. Risk Brief.